Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Hope you and yours are uh, all doing fine. It's another Friday. That means we've got another week under our belts. And there were some developments in the world of football this week, of course, with... Uh, the training protocols being agreed on Monday and players returning to training this week, Wednesday and Thursday. The Arsenal players were in, but of course it's not training as we know it. They're training in small groups. They have to arrive in their gear. They're not allowed to have a shower. It's like playing Tuesday night Astro football. You arrive fully kitted out in your uh, in your gear, and then you uh, get back into your car afterwards, and you drive home and you have a shower there. Uh, it's not the way they're used to doing it because obviously the uh, the training facilities at Arsenal and most Premier League clubs are very nice. So you can you know turn up and you park your car and you wander in the dressing room, the dressing room bants and all that kind of crack, and the showers and the ice baths and and all the rest of it. So it is unusual. It is going to be strange for them in this initial period. But uh, the Premier League also carried out testing across the Premier League. Seven hundred and forty eight tests were carried out. Six were positive. None of them were at Arsenal, which is a good thing. Danny Ceballos did an interview uh, in Spain. He said the entire squad had tested negative, so that's good. And I suppose we wait for the next step. And the next step is a return to full training, full contact training. But based on what they were saying uh, this week, the Premier League, when they were talking about discussing these uh, matters with the players, they said they hope to have these discussions in the next seven to ten days. So it doesn't seem like it's it's uh, you know all set in stone yet. They've got to get the final bits and pieces of those put together. But look, we'll chat about that in a minute. We do have a good show for you today. We're going to be talking to Matt Spiro, the uh, the France-based journalist who's been on the podcast uh, many times. He's got a brand new book out, so we're going to talk to him about that. A little bit later on, we are talking to a legend of 80s and 90s broadcasting, a person that many of you, if you grew up in the UK, will know very, very well if you're of a certain age. But first, to talk about the few bits and pieces that have been going on this week in terms of football and some of the Premier League uh, discussions that have been taking place, it's Tim Stillman. Hi, Tim. Hello there. Let's talk training because the guys are back um well sort of anyway they're they're turning up in their cars they're doing their individual sessions uh they're socially distancing they're not allowed to use any of the uh, the facilities etc but it is a step in i suppose the right direction if if the right direction is getting football back yeah yeah it's 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 quite interesting really because i even though this is kind of all we've all we've had to talk about let alone all we've been talking about for a few weeks it does still kind of seem like it snuck up on me a little bit i don't i don't know even though like this was kind of roughly the timeline they've been talking about for a long time i I don't know if it just fits in with that thing at the moment i think a lot of us are experiencing where time is simultaneously going really quickly and really slowly at the same time but (laughs) yeah it it feels like not not so much that we're getting somewhere but maybe that we're going somewhere if mm. that makes sense like the the first kind of tentative you know footsteps and and it sounds like um you know decisions are starting to be made um at the time of recording this afternoon the EFL for example have kind of come up with a bit of a framework for clubs to agree and it, it feels like we've got past the stage pretty much where we're listing all of the problems 
Um, it sounds like insofar as we can be aware of the problems at the moment because new ones will crop up. We've kind of got to the stage where we think, okay, we think we know at this stage what all of the barriers are. So here are some solutions, and we recognise they're not all perfect. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I actually, um, I listened to quite one of the Ornstein and Chapman podcasts yeah. recently, and I never thought I'd say this, but it was very interesting to hear from Sean Dyche. Um, <laughs> The words I never thought that um, would come out of my mouth, but he was talking about, you know, this return to training and actually surprisingly, he was really sanguine about it. Um, And he was like, he was very kind of practical and constructive and kind of said, yep, we we think we can get on with this. We know it's not ideal. And when he was talking about like the phase we're in at the moment where it's kind of distance training and small groups, he was kind of saying that's generally more or less what the first week of pre-season looks like anyway um obviously you know not with the kind of not showering at the training ground and and stuff like that but yeah. he said that the sessions in and of themselves actually are, are, are pretty similar so i kind of think as much as it feels like we're going somewhere if not getting somewhere it does kind of feel like that maybe this is the easy bit um and i'm sure we'll talk about this later as well but you know obviously there are there are players who don't want to and you know barriers like that and it'll be really interesting to see whether the attitude is like like i don't think that's going to stop anything basically i i think um a bit like you know when we saw the positive tests in the bundesliga um and the kind of attitude was well okay that's that's going to happen let's just keep getting on with it let's just keep kind of you know blundering through as it were and i i do think that that's going to happen in the premier league as well I, i think that more or less, unless there's an absolutely enormous mutiny, I think they're just going to kind of try and crack on as much sure. as they can. I mean, the the six positive tests out of 748 is a, a fairly low percentage and certainly not the kind of numbers that would make people say, oh, we can't, you know, we can't go mm-hmm. on with this. And Arsenal, thankfully, everybody tested has, has come out negative. Um, you know, it does feel, though, to me, I know we're, we're talking on, what date is it, 21st of May. Originally, the date for the return of the Premier League was earmarked as the 12th of June. We now believe it's going to be the the 20th and 19th, 20th of June, um, mm. uh, revealed to us bizarrely by Danny Ceballos in an interview he did in Spain, where he says they've been told that it's going to be pushed out by a week. But that's obviously the expectation. Mm. It just feels, does it feel to you um, maybe a little bit of a big jump to go from players turning up in their cars, disinfecting footballs, all of that kind of stuff, you know, having to go home, wash their own kits, etc., etc., uh, or have them washed, I should say. I'm pretty <clears throat> sure most of them aren't going to be washing their own kit. They've, <laughs> they've never had to do that and, and never will. But, you know, to go from that to, like, full contact training, where you have to assume that if full contact training is in place, the facilities must be uh, available to them or should be available to them because if it's deemed safe for them to have that kind of personal contact, th- there must be a, a sort of a relaxing of, of the other uh, restrictions as well. Mm. Yeah, it it does. It does. I I guess um, that you know the the Premier League would argue it's going to be driven by the testing, so they're going to be tested yeah. so regularly, and that I guess kind of um, notionally at least the idea is that really they could do full contact training now, but they don't want to do that. They want to take it step by step, but really they want to take the steps very quickly. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I think it does feel fast. But then again, if if the testing is there, maybe not quite as much. And it's mm. kind of exactly what they did in Germany as well. They've not been training that long, you know, full contact training in Germany, and they've kind of cracked on with it. 
um, albeit I think they're kind of being driven by um, finishing everything by June the 30th so they can at least eliminate the contract issue. Um, I, I think were that not an issue, they might have waited another couple of weeks. But yeah. um, it, it certainly feels quick. But actually, for me, it's more um, physically it feels quick to go from kind of training in your garden to distance training. And then, you know, in the space of like four to six weeks, you know, playing games, that that to me feels quick. That's more punctuated than yeah. a preseason. They've had longer off. Um, you know, just speaking to, you know, spoken to a couple of players in the women's team during this time. And, you know, they've been saying that obviously you can keep yourself fit, but the kind of the twisting, the turning, the repeat sprints, the kind of bumping into people, you can't replicate that. And, and actually, one of the things a couple of them have said to me as well is actually it's all very well training, but training in terms of like your motivation when you don't know when your next game is when you don't know what you're actually training for is actually really really difficult psychologically not having that kind of marker on the calendar and in the premier league we still don't have that at the moment for Mm. definite so at the moment they're all going into london colney and they don't know what their next game is who it's against where it's going to take place, yeah. uh, what time it's going to kick off, etc., etc. Because I think the Premier League will take advantage of the no fans thing, and they'll perhaps have some morning kickoffs to suit certain time zones. Oh. I, I see the Premier League being quite savvy like that. So, do you think they will? Because I mean, I, I thought it was a really great point that Ken Early made in his article mm-hmm. in the Irish Times this week about how the reason football matches traditionally uh, and generally are played at the weekend is because people are off work and they're available to go at the weekend. But if football becomes a TV spectacle, if it becomes in essence a television show because there are no fans to consider, um, at least uh, when it comes to the stadium experience for X amount of time or however long it's going to be before we get fans back, you know, it might be something that they look at uh, in terms of when they broadcast games, like when is the maximum audience yep. for uh, for a football match? I suppose it's it's part of why Monday night football is a thing, because yep. you know wh- whatever we might think about it, um, and I don't like it uh, one little bit. But for your average neutral person who's sitting at home and uh, wondering what to do on a Monday night, if there's a game of football on, then it sort of takes that problem away. Yeah, so I, I, I heard um, Ken talking about that on Second Captain's podcast, and I think he's exactly right. I think that's why they won't happen Saturday at three o'clock. Um, and I think he's quite right. When you think about it, that's kind of the lousiest time for, for from a TV perspective. So I don't think they'll happen Saturday three o'clock. I do think that maybe Saturday 10 a.m. is something you might see because it kind of works quite well for certain markets in certain times, st- in certain um time zones but also like if you're in england saturday morning is kind of that's i I think that's more of a natural time when actually people Mm. are probably more geared to sit there and watch a football game compared to saturday afternoon like uh, like from yeah it's assuming it's saturday you know i I think the saturday 10 a.m thing might work in the uk but it's not necessarily going to work in the u.s where there is of course a big audience as well but you know maybe i don't know thursday night thursday after i don't know it is going to be very interesting to see how they how they do it Hmm. yeah yeah and and actually um i i'm quite looking forward to that aspect of it now i don't have to worry about (laughs) catching trains and (laughs) and stuff like that like I, i 
I spent not this Christmas, last Christmas in Brazil. And um, at Christmas, they're two hours behind there. And I think we had a home game against Burnley. And um, and it was a half 12 kickoff. And, and I watched that in Brazil and it was half 10 in the morning. Oh, nice. Um, at, at the height of their summer. And do you know what? It was wonderful because I sat there with a freezing cold beer at half 10 in the morning um, and the game was over by lunchtime and I just had the rest of my day to kind of yeah, get on yeah. with and, and actually that's quite appealing. What, what do you make of the... I know these are sort of speculative um, reports, but, you know, the Premier League chairman, Richard, Richard Masters, is on record as talking about, you know, having discussions about making the viewing experience better for uh, for everyone who's going to have to watch football because, again, there's going to be nobody in the stadiums. Um, and part of what makes football exciting is the crowd noise, the swells and the cheers and the boos and all of that kind of stuff, which we all know and perhaps have taken for granted down the years because we never thought we'd be in this kind of situation. But what would your preference as a viewer be um vis-a-vis the idea of let's say uh, a soundtrack so they they play a soundtrack of football noise a low level crowd noise and when it gets exciting the you know the fader for crowd excited crowd noise goes up and when a a shot is missed it's like ooh, which you know they've got in their library of sounds and they may do um you know cgi fans or augmented reality to make it look like there are fans in the stadiums um I mean, to me, it just is utterly crazy to even think about doing something like that. But it is obviously something that they're thinking about. So, you know, as a viewer, and, you know, you're somebody who for most of your life uh, or most of your adult life anyway, has watched football live in the stadiums, you know, coming to this as, um, you know, a a blow in television fan now, uh, what what would you what would you think of that kind of um, implementation? So uh, this might be a slightly surprising answer. I I don't have a strong opinion on it um, at all, actually. I I don't really mind um, what they do. I guess I I I guess I just still find the whole kind of canned laughter, uh, canned crowds noise kind of thing. I find I just find it difficult to imagine because I've never heard it before i've never really sure. seen it done and um there's a, there's a big but so first of all i i don't think it should be the premier league or, or i don't think the premier league should worry themselves about it i think they should leave it to the broadcasters um because they probably have the expertise there and if i were the premier league i'd just say we've got a fucking enough to worry about thank you very much like <laughs> this is your television spectacle you've bought it one of the reasons the tv deal is so attractive to the premier league is because they basically they take all the money and they say here do what you want with it um and mm. so i i kind of think leave it to the broadcasters i i think it's worth a try the thing is if you're going to try it don't just do it once because it will take people some time to get used to and absolutely hands down the initial reaction will be this is crap this is horrible do away with it so i think you've got if you're going to do it you've kind of got to persevere for five or six games and see if it takes hold Uh, i i I think it's worth a try personally i i just don't really care that much i'm kind of fine with the the ambience of a behind closed doors game um to like to be completely honest you know I, i i watch a lot of like the WSL, for example, where the crowds are, you know, around a thousand anyway, um, and there's not an awful lot of crowd noise. So I, I kind of think I'm a bit desensitized to it in a way. Um, and actually, it's, it's 
quite interesting picking mm. up what what people are saying in dugouts and people swearing at assistant referees and things like that that's quite entertaining but i don't like like particularly where arsenal games are concerned where arsenal games are concerned i, I really don't care i mm. really don't care just like don't give me robbie savage or steve McManaman. <laughs> well, that's and, what you're gonna get you're definitely yeah, gonna get exactly that. yeah like, don't give me those guys <laughs> that's what i'll worry about but yeah. the rest of it not really if i'm watching a game i'm not as invested in i i'd be quite in interested just to see sure just because i find it difficult to conceptualize yeah yeah I, yeah i wonder are there sort of on off buttons for it or red button mm. uh things they can do that if you press this button you can get the crowd noise or, or you could turn yep. it off if you want i mean i've often thought that turning the commentators off would be a brilliant option which mm. you know isn't readily available i suppose the thing is though you know from a from a just a just sort of reading the room point of view if you like because you know we're all aware that the world is going through a a very difficult period and i think we have to sort of face up to the reality of that and if the reality of that is empty football stadiums and players shouting at each other and managers shouting from the sidelines echoing around the emirates or or old trafford or anfield or whatever it might be Maybe that's what we have to get used to. Maybe that's the the right thing to do. And I think as well, you know, uh, for fans who who can be in the stadium, for season ticket holders, for members and and all those kind of things, to sort of be digitally replaced, um, I'm not sure that that would necessarily sit right with people. No, possibly not. But at the same time, I I think... Like, so what we're talking about here, um, in essence, we're talking about a lot of things are going to change and a lot of things that were probably in the post already for mm. football um, are probably going to be expedited. And and actually, there's maybe a bit of an opportunity to be creative here um, and to do things a little bit differently and perhaps experiment with things that, you know, football has wanted to experiment with, but not really found the bandwidth for um, for a little while. But I, I, I think... The thing for me is now is that football is competing with other forms of entertainment. Mm. Um, And I wonder how much that will factor. You know, I'm talking about like the broadcasters making those decisions about crowd noise and things like that. And and, and yeah, like from my point of view as as kind of a hardcore football fan, um, like I say, I'm not really bothered. I'm I'm quite happy watching and just hearing the net ruffle and all of that. But um, I guess football is competing now not you know whereas football used to compete with like rugby and cricket now it's competing with netflix and disney plus um and things like that and it has to think about those audiences and you know how they kind of draw people in because like i have to say i when the bundesliga started up last weekend i didn't watch a second of it i really didn't well I, i think i saw the goals on twitter and, you know, I was indoors and I wasn't mm. really doing anything. I was doing a bit of work, but I had stuff on in the background. But, I mean, it's extraordinary. I've been like most people, um, you know, who aren't key workers. Like, I've been housebound for the last nine weeks with no football to watch. And yet the the options available are so vast that even after nine weeks without football, I felt like I had superior options yeah. uh, to watching like a behind closed doors Bundesliga game that I don't really care about. And yeah, and that's, that's the kind of thing that like, there is an appetite for the game to return, but I don't think that football should overestimate that. 
No, I agree, which is why I think doing things like artificial atmosphere and, and those kind of things might be something the broadcasters uh, look at and say, well, this enhances the, the, the product from our point of view, but it doesn't really enhance the game. And, and it, it's at odds with the reality that we're, we're all experiencing. Just a, a final question, Tim, um, with regards to tickets um, and the, the issue of what's going to happen for season ticket holders and for members and for, you know, club level uh, members, one of whom was on to me this week talking about how, you know, they'd already paid a 25% deposit on their ticket for next season. Um, we know that some clubs have um, decided that they will give uh, refunds based on the amount of games left uh, to their season ticket holders. Uh, they include Norwich, Everton, Brighton, Leicester, Liverpool, Spurs, Burnley, Manchester United and Manchester City. We're still yet to hear anything from Arsenal. Is that something that, that bothers you? Are you sort of exercised about that as a, as a season ticket holder? Um, and does, you know, the, the club's um, alacrity when it comes to looking for the players to take a wage cut play any part in you know the thinking that um, in this particular situation it's dragging out a little bit longer without any real clarity I know they've said look we will address this issue in due course and I'm sure that it is a very complicated one and a complex one for them to come to terms with and how they deal with it whether it's refunds rebates vouchers money off the next season ticket whenever it might be but it does feel feel like something that's been kicked down the road a little bit without yeah. without enough clarity just at the at this moment in time yeah yeah i think so and i and i think um uh, i i imagine and i don't know this i imagine what arsenal are looking at is they're looking at options for well how can we perhaps offset some of this against the next season ticket but they don't know what the next season ticket is going to look like yet um the, it, one thing is for certain we are not getting 26 home games next season that's mm. not going to happen so whatever happens we are not getting the usual season ticket and i imagine they're trying to tie in the options because what they probably are not reluctant but they they probably want to try if they can to avoid a situation where they're just giving 40,000 people you know, money back at the same time at a time where they're usually taking in uh, lots of money from those people. So, mm. you know, from my own point of view, usually um, I'm, a, you know, I'm the best, I'm the kind of the guts of two grand lighter um, at this at this part of the year. This yeah. is, you know, when we're typically renewing. And like you say, club level season ticket holders have, have taken some of that pain already. Um, and, and I think one of the things Arsenal have to be mindful of is um, there are a lot of people who are in, you know, fiscal trouble um, at the moment. And that will include a lot of season ticket holders who will be very keen to see that money back ASAP. So I imagine that Arsenal were trying to look into options about what next season season ticket might look like. For example, um, you know, I, I suspect one of the ways that the Premier League might look to rebate the broadcasters is to say, well, look, if all of next season is behind closed doors, why don't we just give you access to every single game? Um, that, mm. that might be something they explore. Whereas, you know, individual clubs might say, well, hang on. What we'd like to do for our season ticket holders is say to them that we guarantee we will be able to offer them a stream uh, through their membership for every home yeah. game or something like that. So I imagine that they've just been waiting to see how things are playing out. But to be honest, I kind of think that time's probably run out on them. Um, and what they should do is just issue the refunds and say, you know, we'll be in touch about 
you know, season tickets for next season, yeah. or at least give people the option and say, well, actually, we can give you your money back now um, if you want, or what we can do is we can keep it and you can wait to hear what might happen in due course. And I, I imagine it will be some kind of mixed option like that. So yeah. while I've got sympathy with them for, you know, they, they're going to look, they're going to have to be creative with, with what, just, just like we're going to have the Premier League will have to be creative with what they give to broadcasters. Um, clubs are going to be have to be creative about what they give to their members because they're not getting what they usually get. Um, but I, I think now, at the very least, they should they should be approaching people and saying, "Look, if you really need the refund, we can get it to you now, and we can talk to you later about the rest." Hmm. All right. Well, look, we'll see. We're overdue an update, I think, on on everything because there are there are some issues, I suppose, outstanding. Um, you know, they committed to paying casual staff up until the end of May, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and how that tallies with that with that staff over the course of a normal summer, anyway. If they work or don't work, uh, I don't really know, but it does feel like we we are are uh, close to getting an update hopefully uh, from the club in that regard anyway look um, as always thanks a million Tim really appreciate it my pleasure as always thank you very much indeed to Tim you can find him on Twitter at Stilberto that is at Stilberto read his column every Thursday on arsblog.com and of course Tim is the host of the Arsenal Women Arsecast which of course is unquestionably the best podcast there is about the Arsenal women's team there's a new episode of that due imminently so keep an eye on your podcast feeds Now, my next guest on the Arsecast is someone we've spoken to a number of times before on the show, particularly when there's something going on in France that we need to know. It's Matt Spiro. Hi, Matt. Hi, Andrew. Good to talk to you at last, uh, now that we've sorted out these little connection issues we've been having. But uh, how's it all going with you over there? Yeah, it's it's all going very well. Thank you, Andrew. It's been obviously a very strange period. I'm enjoying the, the the freedom that we've had in France for the last week because we don't have to sign these forms now to to go down to the boulangerie or mm. or, or whatever. We can actually go out and walk. I've I've gone back to work a little bit, so yeah, life sort of. I mean, I wouldn't say it's getting back to normal, but I have managed to to send my girls back to school for the first time this week. So I, so I had a day of sort of peace and quiet and, and no homeschooling, which right. yeah, which which was a relief. Okay, some elements of normality uh, as we head <laughs> yeah. towards whatever normality is going to be uh, in the future. But we're talking today uh, not because there's a great deal going on with regard to Arsenal. Uh, there isn't, but there is a sort of Arsenal connection in in what we're about to talk about. Uh, you've written a book called Sacre Bleu from Zidane to Mbappé. A football journey which looks at a period in French football which has had some incredible highs and incredible lows. Uh, obviously, France win the World Cup in 1998 and uh, European Championships in 2000. And then there was the mid-20s, uh, 2000s uh, mayhem that went on. And then, of course, France uh, take it full circle, I guess, and win the World Cup in, in 2018. You start with Kylian Mbappe. Um, can you explain why? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kylian Mbappe is the central thread in the book, uh, partly because he was born in 1998, the year of the first World Cup win. And uh, also, of course, because he starred in, in, in 2018, but also because symbolically, as well as you know what he's done on, on the football pitch, he has been just absolutely huge and, and, and something of a saviour for, for French football. Um you know, everybody saw what he did in, in, in the World Cup in 2018. And you have to realise this has come um, at the end of a period of, um, of, 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 of crisis, really, an extended period of crisis in, in, in French football. You sort of alluded to the, you know, the problems in the 2000s. France reached a World Cup final in 2006. 
Um, but then it was uh, sort of uh, marred, or you know, that incredible drama with, with Zinedine Zidane's headbutt. Um, they've had a, a, a strike at the World Cup in, in, in 2010. There have been all sorts of scandals in more recent years. The, uh, the quota scandal when top coaches in France were, were said to be, to, to be plotting a, um, the introduction of a quota to reduce the, uh, the black and North African kids being, being accepted into academies. We've had the Karim Benzema, uh, Matteo Valbuena sex tape scandal. So, I mean, you know, it's just been... So eventful, um, some mind-boggling affairs. But um, the book really looks at everything that's gone on in those 20 years, but also you know, how Kylian Mbappe has grown up during this time and uh, how he's been moulded as a man and, and, and as a football player you know, amid this incredible backdrop. Uh, one of the things that sort of runs through the book, uh, you know, you mentioned the quota system there, and I might get you just to explain that uh, in a little more detail in a moment. But just, you know, when when France won the World Cup in 1998, it was with a squad with, with backgrounds from all over the world. I mean, there's an element, of course, of the colonial history of France um, playing a part in that. But it was seen as something which would unite the country uh, because of players from all these diverse backgrounds but throughout the book, it, it feels like those are issues which um, aren't necessarily a, a positive, if that's the right way, that the idea that what, what France did in 1998 would sort of pave the way for a new harmonious yeah. society isn't necessarily the case. So, um, you know, can we touch on that a little bit, just sort of maybe going back to 98 when they did win the World Cup with these players, you know, with Zidane, with players from um, African backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Well, I mean, 98 is a, is, is a huge moment, not just because it's the first World Cup win, but, it, you know, they don't have the same sort of cultural history um, with regard to football in France as they do in, in, in England. And it was kind of seen as very, you know, it was frowned upon by, by, by the middle and upper classes to, to, to like football. And then suddenly it just became popular in, in, in 1998. And this team, like you say, they, they were called the Black Blanc Burr team, Black White Arab team, mm. um, with, with origins from, from all over the world. I mean, it was unquestionably a beautiful, historical, wonderful moment, but it, it didn't have the long-lasting effects that, you know, some people rather perhaps optimistically were, were hoping it would, because ultimately it's just, a, you know, it's a football team, it's a World Cup yeah. win, but it doesn't change everything that's going on in society. And it, it, and it all sort of came undone, pretty quickly really and in 2002 we had Jean, Jean-Marie Le Pen the uh, national front leader getting into the second round of, of the elections that was soon after France had, had played Algeria in what was um, an astonishing night the first time they played Algeria since um, since uh, the independence of Algeria and uh, we had thousands and thousands of, of, of young kids mainly of uh, uh, of North African descent invading the pitch they were 4-0 down I think at, at, at the time um, and it and it and it led to sort of you know it 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 had a hugely negative impact on the way that people were looking at the immigrant communities in France and it, and mm. it undoubtedly fed into um, you know Jean Marie Le, Le Pen's hands. But it was interesting. I mean, I've, I've talked to a number of of people from that ninety eight period, and uh, they still have sort of very differing opinions about it. Um, somebody like Marcel Desailly told me that it was you know, fantastic and that we did a wonderful sort of job for the for the image of immigrants in in, in France. Um, Emmanuel Petit, who I met in Paris as well, said to me, listen, I, I didn't like it because actually 
um, you know, the guys that I'd been playing football with and growing up with, for me, they weren't black blonde burr. They were just my mates and I didn't see them as different colours or what have you. Mm. And then you've got, yeah, and then you've got Lilian Turam, who when I actually put to him what Petit had said, he said, yeah, but, you know, Emmanuel Petit didn't grow up like I did as a black kid in the suburbs being discriminated against. So, you know, it's it's it's, it's a huge, huge um, issue. And um, French society is, 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 is a fascinating sort of study on its own. And, and football quite often reflects um, the way, uh, yeah, the way France is very much sort of divided into two. Because, I mean, now, I've been living in Paris for a, for, for a very long time, but my world, uh, you know, living in a, in, a, in a flat in the middle of Paris is very different to, to the world of you know, thousands of essentially um, people from immigrant backgrounds growing up in, in huge high rise towers and finding it very difficult to, to make their way sort of in, you know, in the professional world. Yeah, I mean, I remember Robert Perez talking quite openly. I don't know if it was, it must have been early in the 2000s anyway, about the possibility of Jean-Marie Le Pen winning the presidential election mm. and saying, look, this is not, you know, if this happens, I'm not going to play um, for the French team. You know, we wouldn't take part in the World Cup. And, you know, there was this uh, very virulent opposition to, to the extreme right. And look, thankfully, yeah. thankfully, that didn't happen. But it is a complicated, as you say, a very complicated society with, with issues that run through it. Let's go back to the quota system and talk a little bit about what exactly that was and what the the thinking was behind it from some of the people who put this forward because uh, is it uh, in the forward maybe it's uh, Arsene Wenger who says something like 60% of the uh, the players who, who are professional players in France come from the Paris suburbs so yep. can you sort of outline you know w what is that I mean I think everybody's sort of heard of you know the players who've grown up uh, in the tough Paris suburbs and, and everything else. And, and, you know, we've had them uh, at Arsenal down the years. But, you know, what is the what is the reality of that when it comes to these young footballers? And what was what was the quota system designed or intended to do? Yeah, um, well, I mean, the Paris suburbs remains like a hugely sort of fertile breeding ground, if you like. I think it's the biggest certainly the biggest reservoir of, of footballing talent in Europe. I think San Paolo is just uh, just above it in terms of supplying Europe and, 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 and the world with, uh, with top talent. And um, look, the quota scandal, it's, it's, it's a complex issue. And some of the quotes that came out um, from Laurent Blanc and from um, Blackheart, who was the technical director at the time, are deeply shocking quotes, in particular when they're taken in isolation. Laurent Blanc said... You know, this was in 2010, 2011, when Spain were, were dominating. And he said, oh, when I go to Spain and talk to coaches there, they tell me we don't have any problems. We don't have any black players. Now, mm. that, you know, you can hear that and think, my goodness me, what a terribly racist man. But I mean, th th there were two issues that they were discussing. One was dual nationality. There, Of course, a lot of these kids who have African parents um, can play for another nation um, if they if, if they choose to. A lot of them. Um, get picked for the uh, state academies, the federal academies, including the one at Clairefontaine in, in, in Paris. And, um, yeah, a, a lot of these coaches, including Gérard Houllier, who, who was the technical director over two spells for, for a long time, finds it, you know, finds it grating, finds it difficult to think that the French taxpayer is paying to, to sort of, uh, you know, create a Senegal team or an Algeria team. And, um uh, you know, that is the reality of the situation. 
you could also argue that the top players essentially opt to play for France anyway. So is it really such a big issue? Um, but anyway, there was that. And there was also the football argument. Now, the football argument was that France, after dominating in 98 and 2000, um, thanks to you know a wonderful team, of course, Zinedine Zidane was fantastically skillful, but above all, the characteristics of that team was that they were very strong and they were very athletic. We're talking about Marcel Desai, Lilian Thuram, Emmanuel Petit, Patrick Vieira. And this became the blueprint for, for French football. Um, that means that you know, this was defined at Clairefontaine that picking young kids for your academies, we need to be looking at the strongest, the most athletic players. And they went far too far in that direction. And what Laurent Blanc was saying was that the kids that we are picking at the age of 12 are the big, strong ones, and they are basically the black ones. Um, and, you know, he, they're, 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 in, in the Paris suburbs, there is a very high percentage of, uh, of, of black population. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I've spoken to coaches at, at Clairefontaine. Andre Morel was the technical director for a long time. And he told me he felt that they wanted more white players, fewer black players. But he said to me, listen, most of the players are black. Most of the best players are black. I'm doing my job. And it's, it should never be a question of color or race. Hmm. Um, and, and, and you can totally understand that. So, you know, the problem is these two kind of subjects were mixed. People within the federation um, clearly felt there was, um, you know, a racist undercurrent. The, 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 this big meeting, this famous meeting was recorded and the tape was given in, wasn't given to the press, it was given in to, to the chief at the federation at the time and somehow it, it, it did get leaked to the press. So, yeah, it's, there, there, there are a lot of issues in there, but certainly from 2010 onwards, there was this feeling because we had also Andrew, you know, it's, it's a big subject. So sorry for rambling, but no, no. Um, you had players like Antoine Griezmann who were getting turned down because they were too small um, and had to, you know, Griezmann moved to Spain when he was 15. Guys like Matteo Valbuena had no chance of making it in academies. So, you know, there, there, there is, you know, I think a football argument to say, yes, they needed to change the criteria to try to, you know, assess a player's footballing ability, footballing intelligence, because there was certainly, I think the French were guilty of, of having very strong, and I'm not talking about the colour of skin, but very strong athletic players at 13, 14, 15. And then it gets to sort of 18, 19, when the others perhaps grow a little bit more. Yeah. They haven't developed their footballing talents as, you know, as much as they could have. Yeah, there's sort of an equalisation. Um, yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, I suppose it's worth pointing out that for all the players who, who went through the French system and maybe opted to play for uh, Algeria or one of the other countries, you know, there are examples of it working the other way around. And the one that, that uh, strikes me is Patrick Vieira, of course, who's born in, in Senegal exactly. And, exactly. and played for France. So th there is a little bit of a quid pro quo, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And I can give you a an Ask Blog exclusive from one of the guys I spoke to, Ricardo Fatti. Now, he's, he's not become a big star, but Ricardo Fatti went to Clairefontaine. He is a, a big, tall, leggy uh, midfield player with Senegalese origins. And he, during his youth, he was billed as the next Patrick Vieira. And he was actually successful up until sort of under 20 level. Um, and he went to Roma for talks. I think it was 2007 time. Um, and back in those days, Andrew, you, you, you know, when you went abroad, often... 
your, you know, if you didn't get your international roaming on, your, your telephone wouldn't work. His <laughs> phone wasn't working when he was out there. Um, he got back and he'd had 10 missed calls. He'd signed with Roma and he'd had 10 missed calls from his mum. And um, Gilles Grimondi had been desperately trying, to, trying to, uh, to, to call her to get hold of Ricardo, saying Arsenal wanted him. And um, he was absolutely gutted because wow. he, he told me oh, I was I was ready to go to Arsenal and I thought it was all going to be great. But probably, you know, we, we can add Ricardo Fatty to the list of players who, who might have <laughs> signed but didn't. But um, probably, you know, Arsenal, you know, unfortunately for Ricardo, didn't miss too much with, with, with him. Yeah, it sounds it sounds quite classically Arsenal, like last minute trying to get in touch with somebody. Yeah. And then, you know, in the end, that they, they can't do it. Um I mean, there were, I suppose, other factors in players deciding to, to go for France, um, maybe over a home country, the, the, the country of their parents, which, of course, is a, you know, is a big draw. I know, like, as a, a, an Irishman, but I was born in England. Yeah. Um, you know, I never had to make any kind of choice like that. But I know that if I uh, would have had to, it would have been for Ireland because I was brought up as Irish, uh, you know, by my Irish parents in England. Um, yeah. So that, that, you know, you can see why players go for that but there's also other elements there are financial elements and, and profile elements like I, I think about um, oh Declan Rice you know who was uh, about to become an, an Ireland player but you know the reality is if you're an England international your earning power and your stature in the game is much higher than if you're uh, an Ireland international uh, it's fair to yeah. say so there's probably elements of that as well yeah I mean that's something yeah that absolutely that's something I talk about in, in 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 the book quite a lot, particularly in recent years, because Karim Benzema has been such a sort of focal point of a lot of the um, the polemics, the uh, you know the 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 arguing. That I mean, in the last ten years or so, when, you know when, when France were going through the darker times, there were a lot of sort of people saying these guys don't care about France, they don't sing the national anthem, and that is often something that is pointed at. Uh, Benzema, even mm. though other players, notably Michel Platini, never used to sing national anthem. Nobody minded because he was scoring hat tricks in most games. But um, yeah, so Benzema would never sing the national anthem. When he was 19, Benzema gave an interview um, on French radio when he said, "Of course, Algeria is the um, you know the country of my parents. It's the country of my heart. But I will play for France." You know, and this was a kid who you know probably didn't know the career he was going to have and. You know, this, this sentence is often sort of fired at him saying he doesn't care about France and he'd mm. rather play for, for, for Algeria. You, you've more recently had Nabil Fekir, who also has Algerian parents and hesitated for a long time. And I'm actually, there's a journalist in my, in, in my book who, who, who states quite unequivocally that um, Nabil Fekir decided to play for France because his agent, who is uh, Jean-Pierre Bernès, who is one of the most powerful agents in France, um, and is also the agent of Didier Deschamps, said, listen, for your career, for your contracts, you've got to play for France, son. Mm. And, you know, that put him in this position where he was actually getting booed at the Stade de France when he made his debut. Um, so, you know, from one point of view, you can understand, well, I don't know if you can understand, I mean, I was going to say you can understand fans who who think, well, hang on, this guy's only playing for France for money. He'd rather play for, for Algeria. It, it certainly you know, leads to that sort of ill feeling that, you know, the, 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 the French public fell out of love with the French national team for a long time. And, you know, essentially it's about results more than anything else. Sure. But, you know, this sort of feeling of nationalism or do these players care about their country was certainly, you know, a big part of it. And the Benzema, you know, the Benzema Giroud thing sort of rumbles on today. Sure. Um, I mean, how much of and, that and is... And it's hard. I, I, Go on. Yeah, sorry. sorry, Andrew. 
No, no, no. Continue. No, I'm just going to say I met I, I met um, Olivier Giroud in, in 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 London, and he's very much aware. Um, there's quite a lot on Giroud in the book, but he's, you know he's very much aware of of the fact that in France he's seen as the man who has taken Karim Benzema's place. Mm. And I talked to you about the the sort of divided society we have in France. If you go into the into the suburbs, I spent quite a lot of time in Bondi researching stuff about Mbappe and I was at the football club quite a lot and there's, there's one coach there who they call Giroud because he's the only guy um, in the suburbs who likes Olivier Giroud apparently and, <laughs> and so they all sort of make fun of him everybody else they're all huge carrying Benzema fans and um, yeah Giroud again he got he got a few boos notably at yeah. a game they played in Nantes where there were yeah a, a, a lot of players coming in from the suburbs of, of Nantes who were not happy um but, but, you know, that's not Giroud's fault, of course, that, that sure. he's being picked. Um, but, it, yeah, it's made life hard for him. I was going to ask, you know, how much of, you know, when you talk about the, the French public falling out of love with the French team, you know, it would be fair to say, uh, you know, from a distance, I'm not, uh, you know, as, as keen an observer as you are. But, you know, during some of the, the years when things weren't going as well as, as they had done, and certainly when things began to go badly, there were characters within that team who were very difficult to like. Uh, you know, players who, who even some of the French players thought were, you know, a bit above themselves. So I think about mm. Samir Nasri and that incident on the coach, you know, which shocked Thierry yeah. Henry and, the, you know, he fell out with, with William Gallas. And, you know, really, I don't have any issue with uh, anyone falling out with William Gallas because he's far from my favorite player <laughs> of all time. But, you know, I remember we did a, a, a story or there was a story that emerged um, about Nasri. I don't know if it was, um, was it, oh God, it wasn't hand grenades. It was tasers, wasn't it? He was like being yes. lured into yes. a trap by mates of Samir Nasri. And, you know, there, was, there were players like Ben Arfa as well. Um, Benzema, you know, a fantastic striker for Real Madrid, but like you say, involved in this pretty grotty uh, thing yeah. regarding uh, Valbuena and the sex tape and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, the quality of the players and their talent, I don't think necessarily was was the issue. Mm. But, you know, some of the characters and the way that they comported themselves must have made it hard uh, to get behind. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I would agree with that. I'd sort of just say that... It, it's probably a generational thing as well insofar as this generation is very different from, from Turam's generation. But I spoke to Turam quite a lot about that. And he said yeah, in his final years, he'd sit at, at, at the table with Patrick Vieira and talk about this for hours saying, you know, these guys, they don't realize what, you know, what, what they're representing here and how important it is. And he said, I took one of these, these uh, slightly big-headed youngsters to one side and said, listen, you're going to be a huge part of the French national team in the years to come. You've got to change the way you behave. You've got to start, you know, having a more collective view of things and nobody can do it. And, and I said to Turam, are you talking about Nasri? And he looked at me and said, I'm, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you who I'm talking about. But yeah, Nasri features quite a lot in the book. Um, there's, there's a chapter about um, what they call here La Génération 87, the 87 generation. Um, mm. These are players who were all born in 87 and they won the under 17 euros in, in, in 2004. And uh, earlier in Nasri's career, I spoke to him and, uh, about that. And he, you know, he says for me, greatest memory I've ever had in football playing. And it was basically Nasri, Hatem Ben Arfa, Karim Benzema and Jeremy Menez, who were all just mm. sensational kids, um, but all, you know, without wanting to tar them with the same brush. And certainly Benzema's had a wonderful career, but all probably had far too high opinion of themselves or a more, you know, a too, too much of an individualistic 
sort of approach to their careers and uh, and uh, yeah to their to their lives and actually that 2014 I mean, it's just a, a, an absolute car crash you've you've half of them have retired already you've got you know at the time of writing the book I think Ben Arthur and uh, Menneth didn't have clubs Nasri was in Belgium and you just think you know these guys are are early 30s what the hell happened um, mm. and I think you're right I, you know I, I think there's no question that uh, and it's you know it's also the fact Andrew that they had such a wonderful generation before them mm. and um you know it was hard for them to to fill these people's boots and to live up to the to 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 you know to the standards that that, that had come before them but yeah the respect just didn't seem to be there you know i i it's it's amazing you to think that a 20-year-old or 19-year-old could get get on a bus or come into a restaurant and just not care about whether it's Henri or, or Turam or, or Desai, these sort of you know, living legends in football. But for them, no, they were already their equal. Mm. I mean, what was what was the low point in, in this sort of 20-year period? Was it South Africa, the World Cup in South Africa? I mean, the, R- the Raymond Dominic era was not um, particularly good. And, uh, you know, I remember... Uh, whether it's just an apocryphal story or not, the omission of Robert Perez from the squad because he was the wrong star sign, stuff like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> these sort of side issues or these these um, distractions that, that went on. I mean, what was the low point and, and when did it really start to turn around? I think, the, uh, well, no question the low point was, was Neissner, which is the town um, that France was staying in at the 2010 World Cup. Um, it was... You know, it's very much seen as the lowest point in the history of French football, possibly even French sport. Um, everybody was just utterly ashamed and utterly disgusted, and uh, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story. I think it was several years sort of brewing, really. That 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 story. It was six years of Dominic, and it all came to a head at the end. You know, probably uh, better than most how France qualified for that World Cup mm. thanks to Thierry's handball at the Stade de France. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then Thierry Henry, you know, again, Dominic, I write about this in the book, he, he didn't want to pick Henry for, I think Henry had scored four goals that season for Barcelona. He couldn't really play as a centre-forward anymore. I mean, he just didn't have the legs that he had before. Um, and Dominic knew that he wouldn't be a first choice. And, he, you know, he decided, I wasn't going to pick Thierry Henry. But he had to tell it, you know, it's, it's just a huge France legend. He had to tell him to his face and he kept putting off the trip to Barcelona to speak to Thierry. And then eventually he went and he came back to France thinking, actually, I've, I've, I've agreed to put him in the squad, haven't I? Mm. And Thierry talked him round and said, no, don't worry. Uh, I'm happy to be a sub. I'll do. But, he, you know, he wasn't happy to be a sub. Um, and it was just one of a whole sort of number of stories, um, jealousy issues within that team. Um, and, you know, ultimately it shows what happens when there is somebody completely powerless and without any any respect left at all at the head of a, uh, of a football team. And that was mm. Raymond Dominic. Um, and yeah, so when did it start to pick up? Um, some argue it started to pick up with Laurent Blanc. I mean, he did, he did quite well. Laurent Blanc was manager from 2010 to 2012. Um, he went, I think, 21 games unbeaten in the lead up to Euro 2012, but left a pretty disappointing um image in the end because not only did they go out with a bit of a whimper against Spain in the uh, in the quarterfinals but there were a lot of behavioral problems again um, and actually I was uh, an eyewitness to Samir Nasri completely losing the plot with a journalist and trying to um, 
trying to pick a fight with him. It was partly the journalist's fault. This was after the game when they were eliminated against Spain. Hmm. Um, Sami Nasri was sort of walking past what we call the, the, the mix zone where the players go and uh, walk past the journalists and they can talk if they want. Nobody in France was really talking and this journalist said to Nasri please quick word please Samir um, and Samir just sort of waved him away and he he, he said casse which is basically F off um, and Nasri heard him and came back and just went completely berserk and it was it was just surreal because he's yeah. quite a, a small chap I'm not that big but he was you know giving it the big one saying come outside and uh, I'll show you you know you say I've got no manners listen to you and it was just you know you just don't expect to see that from a highly paid football player but I mean you know again the journalist certainly provoked him at a time where he was feeling pretty low yeah um, but so yeah so things improved with Blanc but no un- unquestionably Didier Deschamps has done a phenomenal job um, took a bit of time to get going they lost uh, two nil didn't they away to Ukraine in the World Cup playoff 2014 and then the night it all definitively turned around was um, when they, yeah, they won three 0 at the start. The France qualified, and they, it, it, it did feel like something had happened that night. There were incredible scenes, and yeah, they kicked on from there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we remember the, the World Cup win in in uh, twenty eighteen, and you know, twenty sixteen in the uh, the final of, of the European Championships, which they, you know, they probably should have won that game and should have won that tournament. Mm. Yeah, they should have. They should have, and actually, it was. It was a brilliant tournament. I was lucky enough to be working, um, reporting in, in, in different cities. The tournament was obviously hosted by, by France. And it came at a really, really difficult time because the terrorist attacks um, had hit France in November 2015. Um, and there was, mm. you know, huge sorrow, obviously, in the city, but also huge concern that the next sort of target was going to be a Euro 2016 uh, fan park or, or stadium. Um, so yeah, I remember yeah doing interviews in the build-up and just sort of talking to fans about how you know how worried they were, and it was just you know that once the football started and everything was okay. Well, I say everything apart from the the Russian hooligans against England. Mm. The um, the atmosphere was just absolutely wonderful throughout throughout the country, and um, thanks in in no small part to your compatriots, Andrew. The Irish were in <laughs> were, were in great form, but um, yeah, France. Uh, the, the the big game for them was Germany in the. Uh, in the semi-finals, down in Marseille, uh, an incredible night. One of the one of the most memorable that I've seen with uh, with Les Bleus. It's a wonderful stadium, the Stade Velodrome. Real sort of football people down there as well. And Giroud was yeah very interesting and very strong, talking to me about just how important the fans were that night. Germany were better than France, I think, that night. Um, but uh, they, they they got a couple of breaks. They got a penalty. Uh, Griezmann got a second goal, and they just defended for their lives and. Um, yeah, that was sort of their final. And like you say, they should have beaten Portugal. But um, I think they only had three days to prepare for it. And there was, yeah, I, I don't know. Didier Deschamps said that he learned an awful lot in terms of how to prepare a final. And that helped him two years later. I think the atmosphere was strange as well at the Stade de France. It was nothing like it was mm-hmm. down in Marseille. And people just sort of expected France to win. And actually, Portugal defended really well. Had mm-hmm. a bit of luck. And uh, yeah. The rest is history. Well, look, I mean, uh, a lot has happened in 20 years and we've skimmed over some of the key bits here, but uh, it's in great detail in the book, uh, which is called Sacre Bleu from Zidane to to Mbappe, a football journey. for those listening, we've got some copies of the book to give away, so stay tuned uh, for a competition question on that. But before I let you go, I just want to ask about um, what, what's happening football-wise in France. Um, you know, it was a couple of weeks ago now since it was announced that no 
sporting events would be taking place until September at the earliest, and they called time on uh, Liga. Um, how have the decisions um, gone down in terms of, you know, obviously PSG have been made champions, but relegation, promotion, those kind of things. Um, we've heard talk of legal issues. What what exactly is going on? And, you know, is there is there a lot sort of bubbling under as we're all very focused on the Premier League and its return? You know, what's the feeling in France about the way the season has ended? Yeah, there, there, there's been a lot of discussion. There still is a lot of discussion. Lille, sorry, Lyon have... Uh, have um, filed all sorts of complaints. Jean-Michel Olas, the, uh, the Lyon president, is taking legal action on, on various fronts. Um, he is so unhappy, basically, because Lyon was seventh in, in, in the league. And for the first time in 24 years, they're not going to be in Europe next season unless they win the Champions League, if we have the Champions League. Mm. Um, the other club that was very, very upset, and I'd say probably more understandably so, were uh, Amiens. Um, Amiens was second from bottom. Only the bottom two go down automatically in France. Um, Toulouse were bottom and had been absolutely abysmal all season. They were way behind. Um, So while they're obviously not very happy, uh, they can't have too much to grumble about. Um, But Amiens were just four points from safety. They've been showing quite a bit of fight recently. Um, And they've been, likewise, they've been getting legal advice, getting all sorts of petitions. They've they've got some influential people on their side, including Laurent Blanc, who, who, you know, is arguing that, we should start next season with 22 teams in the top flight. But no, the decisions have been made. I'd say the criticism, if you like, was that they were made so quickly. Um, the government announced, um, I think on April the 29th, that there'd be no no sports with more than 500 people, I think, or no sport with spectators um, before September. And then within 24 hours, the French League had had a meeting and had called everything off. So the more people are kind of looking at Germany and perhaps England if they restart. I think the mm. more questions there will be about why on earth did we stop it yeah. so quickly. I think, I, I think sorry, I, I just say, I think the main reason is financial, as with all, you know, uh, you know, of course it is, it is due to the crisis, but I don't think it's a coincidence that in France there is a huge new television deal starting at the beginning of next season, so starting from August. Ah. And I think, I think there's big concern, or there was big concern among the league, that if they said, oh, we're going to try and finish this season and maybe start the new one in January if we have to or something. Um, you know, if Media Pro, who are the new broadcasters coming in, if they pull out, it's over a billion euros, this deal. First time it's gone, it's gone that high. If they pulled out, French football would be in huge trouble. Right. So, yeah, I think yeah. that's the key. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask you why, because obviously France, um, Italy and Spain uh, were also very heavily affected by uh, the coronavirus crisis. Mm. Uh uh, but, you know, there seems to be a willingness in Spain and Italy to uh, to restart the leagues and, and to finish off. So, well, you've pretty much um, explained why there. So <laughs> we'll wait, we'll wait <laughs> well, and see Well, I think happens. so. But, and, I mean, yeah. it's not clear cut. And there, there, there is still a huge amount of debate. And Jean-Michel Olas, I mean, he, he's, he's a divisive figure that a lot of people get fed up with very quickly. But he is he, he is fighting every day. He's got new arguments. And he still thinks that there is a chance that we can get the decision reversed. I mean, you know, I don't think that for a minute. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, it, you know, nothing is definitive yet. In my work, I've had to do the... the the review show of the season and I'm sort of dreading they're going to say well actually we're going to we're going to start the season again because I I work work bloody hard to do that show <laughs> yeah. well um yeah I don't know that that's going to be the case but you know certainly it it always struck me that if uh, a particular league 
made decisions based on you know what what had happened during the season you know every team who's negatively impacted could probably have a good case to say well look you know it, it wouldn't be impossible for us to escape relegation or it wouldn't be you know yeah. impossible for us to reach the European places and the can of worms that it opens uh, or would have opened would be massive so we'll wait and see what happens uh, yeah. uh, in France but look Matt good luck with the book it's out next week um, and we will have a, a link for people to use as well if they want to go and pre-order it and we'll have some copies to give away and uh, look hopefully we can uh, chat again soon thank you very much for having me on Andrew thanks Matt is on Twitter at Matt Spiro at Matt Spiro and if you would like to get your hands on a copy of his book we have got some to give away in a competition there are six in total to give away so your chances of winning are higher than they would be if we had fewer copies to give away which seems fairly obvious. But look, here's an easy question for you. Uh, given that the book spans the year from 1998 to 2018, tell me this. Which Arsenal player scored France's third goal in the 1998 World Cup final? Pretty easy. All you got to do is email your answer to competition at arsblog.com. That is competition at arsblog.com. And I will announce the winners on next week's show. Right, now on the Arscast, I'm delighted to welcome somebody who was a fixture on the radio and television across Britain throughout the 1980s and 90s. He worked for BBC Radio 1, presented Top of the Pops. He worked for Capital Radio, amongst many others. He also presented a long-running TV show called Funhouse, as well as lots of other TV work. And he's still doing lots, as we'll find out. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show Pat Sharp. Hello, Pat. Well, hi, Andrew. Thank you for that very nice intro. Thank oh, you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I did my best. Um, <laughs> I will uh, explain to you the first time, because I'm Irish and I live in Dublin, uh, I don't sort of uh, didn't have the same sort of exposure to you as people might have uh, in the UK listening to radio, etc. And the first time I ever saw you do anything was... I think the l mid to late 80s and on the cable um, TV system in Ireland, uh, all of a sudden... Sky Channel, yeah? Yeah, we got Sky. We got Sky, MTV, music thing. Music box and everything else. So, yeah. yeah, so I was on Sky Channel, which was the forerunner to the Sky TV that everybody knows these days. Yeah. And um, it was still owned by Rupert Murdoch then. Mm. And we were bashing out a ton of pop videos because it was cheap telly and yeah. I was on there with with Tony Blackburn and Gary Davis and uh, Kid Jensen and a lot of the Radio 1 DJs where I was working at the time. So, yeah, yeah it was good times. There was a show in particular where people would request a video and they had to ring <laughs> up and then there was a poor guy called Ronnie who yeah. had to <laughs> run from one building to another to try and unearth the video in the video library archive, etc., etc., which was a strange kind of concept. <laughs> Uh, but it's fun. funny. It's funny, Andrew. How many people remember that show in Ireland? Because it was really big. Yeah. In Ireland, I mean, we were huge in in Norway and Denmark and Sweden and thirty eight different countries all over the shop. But um, Ireland really embraced it, and uh, it was just known as the Great Video Race with Ronnie the Runner. Ronnie and, the um, Runner. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And people would uh, literally send a photograph of them in by post. It would arrive in the 
UK in our London studio and then we would phone them up and we would put their picture on the screen and they would shout down the phone whilst Ronnie ran <laughs> to get their video and they would just go, run, Ronnie, run, Ronnie, run, Ronnie, run yeah. because often they were from Belgium or somewhere and didn't know much else uh, in English <laughs> and um, it was always quite interesting because after they said run, Ronnie, run about 40 times they just went... <sighs> yeah. still not got it <laughs> well it's that thing as well when you say the same word over and over it starts yeah. to lose any meaning you sort of wonder if uh you know if you've made a fool of yourself just repeating yeah. the same thing over and over whatever happened to that guy well he was actually the actual runner so he did work for sky tracks which was the pop music video shows that we were making back in the day and it was his job to basically run and get someone a cup of coffee or take a script over to mm. the other building on the other side of the road so eventually he said hey why doesn't why don't we put him on as, as ronnie the runner because he runs and his name's ronnie uh, stick him on and he can he can uh, become famous but he never spoke because apparently if he ever spoke or said anything they'd have to pay him a presenter's fee which they didn't want to do okay <laughs> Uh, the cutthroat in a industry of broadcasting and what have yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, he he had his moment of fame, I'm sure, and he's uh, you know well remembered by many people across the world for for basically just running to get pop music videos. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go back a bit though and talk about how you began your broadcasting career. Why? <laughs> Why were you uh, interested in radio? What was it about radio that dragged you in? Because I've spoken to a number of radio people for the podcast, and there's this common theme that there's a bug, and once you're sort of bitten by this bug, you've got it for the rest of your life. So was it something that you wanted to do from an early age? It's definitely true about the bug, Andrew, and certainly mm. from an early age as well. I would take time off school by uh, sticking a thermometer underneath a hot water bottle when I <laughs> when I cried cried wolf in the morning and told mum I didn't feel well, and she'd bring me up a hot water bottle and then she'd say, "Right, just take your temperature." Then she'd go out of the room and I'd stick the thermometer under the hot water bottle for about thirty seconds. When she came back, she went, "Oh my God, you can't go to school forever. You should be dead." <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I um so I listened to the radio. Uh, under the covers basically and used to um you know listen to how the jocks were doing things and then from there uh, i got a cassette radio where i was able to fade down the songs with a little button at the mm. top and do my do my own introduction into the cassette radio microphone so i could become the dj and then play it back and record it onto a cassette so i, I did have the bug at an early age and it does never leave you so you're absolutely right i've been doing it for 36 years or something like that now yeah wow yeah i mean that and i think obviously a, a love and appreciation of music is is part of it as well because you can want to be a, a radio presenter but not necessarily be a music presenter so you know that was another element to it i guess that sort of listening to there was something magical i think about you know music on the radio back then and the voices out of the radio back then because you had more of a mental image didn't you 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 could create your own mental image of you know who the guy was who, who the dj was nowadays of course we see pictures and we see videos and and everything else online but you know you 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 could have your own image of what the radio presenter looked like and you could make him as cool as you wanted him to be 
Absolutely, and there were a number of DJs, of course, who were very famous, and people knew what they did look like. Mm. They turned up in your living room every Thursday night hosting Top of the Pops. If you look at the Radio 1 guys, they, yeah. were, they were the rock stars of their day. And, you know, I, I was on uh, the radio. I still am to this day. I mean, I've just worked out it's 38 years, not 36. So there you go. Okay. Time flies when you're having fun. But um, I was on the radio when these guys were really, really well-known and became part of a, a fixture where people say to me today, you know, I got into radio because of you and I listened to you under the covers and, uh, you know, stuff like that. So it, it, it all moves on. But I don't think that the guys who are those guys who've now got on the radio today, I don't think they'll have the same opportunities as I did and these other guys. I don't think that they'll become... Well, I don't want to say that I'm a legend, but certainly the guys uh, who I grew up listening to and ended up working with, people like, you know, Kenny Everett and uh, sure. and Simon Bates and Kid Jensen, these people who I went on to work with and all became my friends. These guys, to me, are radio legends. And, um, you know, the guys today won't have that opportunity because the young guys today have so much else going on in the listener's world with, you know, the internet and the smartphone and Facebook and Instagram and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Whereas people who listened to us on the radio and stood outside Capital Radio in London when we were on the air and, you know, Chris Tarrant would come downstairs and there'd be a ton of people outside waiting for him every morning. It would be because um, they were happy with a hoop and a stick and there was not a lot else going on. We were their entertainment. We could say, listen, Monday morning, 8.15, we'll play the new song by Kylie Minogue and, you know, four and a half million people would tune in to hear that, whereas now people will say, yeah, I've already got that, mate. Downloaded it for free last week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <so. laughs> That's it. I mean, the, 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 the choice is amazing. Having all that choice is amazing. But, yeah, you're, you're right that, you know, when uh, you know Radio 1 in particular in the UK was so, so big, wasn't it? It was like the only mm. place, really, that you could get uh, pop music and chart music and, and beyond, of course, people doing other kinds of music. But what was your... What was your first radio gig? I mean, one of the most difficult things when you're trying to break into radio is A, getting a chance um, and maybe just wangling your way in the door somewhere or B, making the demo tape because you're always very self-critical. I think you get used to the sound of your own voice as you grow up, but when you're doing it for the first time, you know, trying to get the links right and, and everything else can be a little bit trying. So how did you come about your first radio gig? Well, this is where anyone listening is going to actually say, wow, you're a lucky guy, because my first radio gig was on the aforementioned BBC Radio 1, and I covered Steve Wright in the afternoon. Wow. And I'd never been on the radio. I hadn't even done hospital radio. And my first show was sandwiched between Dave Lee Travis and Peter Powell covering Steve Wright while he was on holiday for a week, and I was 20 years old. So I would say, right place, right time, and it's been all downhill from there. <laughs> How nerve-wracking was that, though? <laughs> Um, it was a bit nerve-wracking, but the funny thing about it is, is that being a Londoner, I aspired to being on Capital Radio, which is obviously the station that I listened to, yeah. um, compared to Radio 1, which wasn't all that big in London at the time and still really isn't. Um, so, in a way, when my manager agent said to me, I've, you know, I'd only been with him four or five months, and he got, got my demo tape to the boss at Radio 1 and managed to convince the boss at Radio 1, Derek Chinnery, to give me a shot and get on the air. And when he told me that I was going to be on that week, and, and it was next week or the week after I had two weeks to get ready, um, I went, oh, okay, that's good. He goes, good, it's bloody amazing. What's wrong with you? It's, <laughs> it's the most incredible thing. And I went, well, I'd rather be on Capital. And he went, don't be so stupid. What are you talking about? Either? But, you know, I, I took it and, and grabbed it and tried my best and did a week. And when mm. the week finished, they said, thank you very much, but we don't have any jobs and um, see you later. So I went, oh, 
that was a quick career. I started right at the top and then finished. Um, but Radio Luxembourg then picked me up a, a couple of months later and got me out to the uh, Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, where I did a couple of weeks' worth of shows there and was on every day for a couple of weeks or every evening because it was a nighttime station. And um, from there, I think it was about my 10th day on the air at Radio Luxembourg, the agent guy gave me a call back. Well, my agent, Michael, gave me a call back and said, um, I've got you on Radio 1 full-time. You're going to get your own show. And that's when I joined full-time with um, Gary Davis and Janice Long as three new Radio 1 DJs. I mean, Radio Luxembourg, you've reminded me of. I'd kind of forgotten all about it, but it was a mm. it was a big thing, wasn't it? Radio well, it was Luxembourg. big in Europe. Yeah. It's huge, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right across Europe it could be heard. And, uh, you know, people were listening all over Europe, not just uh, in England to the British service. There was a, you know, various services coming out of this building, the RTL building in Luxembourg. You actually went there and uh, and lived in Luxembourg and, and waited for your show each night and walked past the guy doing the, uh, you know, the Belgium service and then past the guy doing the German service and into the into the French one and then past that into the English one and and so on and so forth. There were tons of different stations all broadcasting in different languages, but they were all part of RTL, which was Radio Tele Luxembourg, and it was a it was a pretty big fish back then on two o. The Great yeah, 208. Great 208. Wow, yeah. Wow. I'd forgotten all about that until you <laughs> mentioned it. So you go back to Radio 1. Are you doing weekdays or weekends or how did oh, that start? Oh, no, 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 no. I went back to one show. I mean, it's right. my own show. We all got one show each, the three new DJs. So they had... Uh, um, Janice early Saturday evening f- from 7 I think and then Gary from 10 Saturday evening and me Sunday morning at 6am doing the early breakfast show before oh. Tony Blackburn so um, you know it was fine it was good and on Radio 1 in those days when there wasn't a million other radio stations and there was no internet it had a surprising amount of listeners so um, you know all the farmers and the nurses and anybody who was up early on a Sunday morning was was there and listening so it was good um, you know when you think back to those times there literally was you know, the BBC and some BBC local radio and uh, a sprinkling of commercial radio stations that had begun, but there wasn't anything like there is now. And people swanning around on their phone listening to, you know, Z100 in New York just by clicking a button. It, it was nothing like that. You listened to the stations that were available and there weren't many of them. So you had good potential for grabbing a bit of an audience whenever you were on whatever time of the day. Sure. 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning is a challenging uh, time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, not even, you're not even back in. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's it, you know. And I did, you know, I did breakfast radio for for the best part of a year here, and it mm. it, you know, I was doing it five days a week, so it completely messed my brain up because you're up at ridiculous times of the morning. But it is kind of a, it's a fun yeah. show to do the breakfast show, you know. As a rule, uh, I think it sort of lends itself to that kind of lightheartedness. But it is, it's a challenge. It's fair to yeah, say. Absolutely, you're right. I mean, I didn't do breakfast. I was doing early breakfast, so right. I was warm up for for Tony Blackburn on a Sunday morning. And uh, I used to hand over to Tony and say, "Come on, Tony, you're on next, and make sure you do a fabulous, sensational <laughs> show." And he would say to me, "Oh, good morning, Pat. Is that you or is that me? It's kind of hard to tell." But, uh, <laughs> we used to have some fun, and Tony remains a good friend of mine to this day. And he lives a couple of miles away, so right. uh, um, you know. I've been very lucky and blessed, as I say, to work with all the uh, aforementioned legends of radio and who are still going strong today. Sure. So how long did you stay uh, at the BBC before you went to Capital Radio? Uh 
Yeah, I was about nine months doing that show, so three mm. three month contracts. And then I think what they wanted to do was to give that show at that time slot to other new DJs and try them out. So, you know, I did I did okay. I hosted Top of the Pops while it was on uh, the show because I was obviously a Radio One DJ at the time. How cool! And, uh, how cool was that? Your first foray into television, and and just to put it in context for some of the listeners uh, who you know might not be aware of of just how big Top of the Pops was, what an institution it was every Thursday on, on the BBC it was the top 40 show you ran down the charts you played you know the, the videos and there were people in studio but it was you know the, the pop music event of the week again because there wasn't MTV or anything like that but it you know as a show it's it's sort of embedded in the in the culture of, of people of a certain age yes it really it really was for more than 40 years and I was probably starting out at a similar time doing the Sky Channel shows which you would have seen in ireland so they were probably crossing over that's when i got the job really i think i got the job on sky because they auditioned a number of radio one djs to become vjs so a disc jockey became a video jockey so it would have coincided with me doing top of the pops and being on radio one in 1982 and 1983 that i ended up uh, um you know presenting on sky and, and doing pop videos but you know being on top of the pops was a completely different audience i was reaching probably well, millions of people seeing that on a Thursday night, people would look at you the next day as if you were an alien going, oh my gosh, the bloke from the telly. Whereas now, almost everybody's on TV and no one bats an eyelid because there's 5,000 channels and the public are famous. But, uh, you know, even if you just you don't want to be a presenter, you can still be on the telly. So, um, yeah, you know, it was done. I moved from Radio 1 when that contract finished and I went to Radio Mercury in Surrey and Sussex and kind of did what I should have done before I was at Radio 1, which was learning my trade being on five days a week on a local radio station. And I enjoyed that, and it gave me um, a lot of experience that I didn't have when I started on the national brand and so I kind of did things the wrong way round, really. Yeah. And eventually went from there to Chilton Radio, and then from Chilton Radio I was headhunted by Capital Radio and went there in 1987 with a load of new guys like Pete Tong and Tim Westwood and... Foxy and a number of other people. So we were the new capital DJs in 1987 who went on to be the most successful ones as such because we were part of the station when it was at its most successful over the next 10 years or so. Yeah, I mean, can you sort of outline just how successful Capital Radio was at, at that time? Because, you know, I, I obviously know of it, but as somebody who wasn't living in London, you know, it's difficult for me. I know it was very popular, but it's difficult for me to sort of put it in, in context. So if you come at me like I'm an ignoramus, you know, it, it was it was really big. Well, you've got it right. You're far from an ignoramus because it was absolutely huge. It was vast. It was enormous. Every single Londoner was driving a car or going for a run or at a market store had it on. I mean, the, mm. you know, we can't say that we were the best. It's just that we were up against not as many radio stations as there are these days. So therefore, we were kind of the only choice, really, for Londoners. And because we were the only choice and we did it well, and we were this hot, rocking, flame-throwing, new-sounding <laughs> radio station, giving it a shot. And um, this new program director they brought in, Richard Park, had this sort of big sound for London and bought these big jingles and made it sound amazing. And we were just loving the chance to be DJs, which nowadays 
you know, they're not really around, are they? Everybody's, if they're any good, there's a presenter. They're people who are talking to people, not at them. So, but then we were, we were, you know, we were, we were disc jockeys. We were, we were on the air saying, you know, 10 songs in a row from the top of the tower, bashing out the fine tunage. And people were sort of thinking, wow, what are all these new words? What does it mean? But it's great. And I'll play along. And we would tell people to come along to one of our, uh, sort of events, you know, a summer party or whatever, and you'd, you'd have a hundred thousand people turn up to to wow. see us introduce a few pop bands. It was amazing, and and everybody had a T-shirt, and everybody stood outside and wrote our names on the pavements in marker pens. Camden Council even made capital pay to have the pavements cleaned because <laughs> uh, they were they were you know it was <laughs> extraordinary times. Yeah, it sounds it. I mean, it just sometimes a station can just capture the imagination of the public at you know right place, right time, like you can be as a presenter. But it can happen for for the station as well. It did. It was very much the station. People loved Capital Radio, and I'm sure that you know. 15-year-old kids today love Capital the same way that they did. But perhaps, you know, they share it with their Instagram posts and everything else they have in their lives. So it's a different time. But uh, then people were happy with a hoop and a stick. And uh, we were the hoop and the stick. And they loved it. And it was uh, a good time to be around. And, and so good to be on a station with, you know, lots of people who were legendary. And I'd grown up with, you know, I worked and covered Kenny Everett's show on Capital Radio. Uh, I worked with him and covered his show. Whereas, you know, I, my memory before that of Kenny Everett is being a, a 13, 14 year old kid trying to get through to his show yeah. and answer, answer a competition. So to be on the air, and uh, him being my colleague, and then ask them, them asking me to cover his show when he was off on holiday was quite an accolade. Yeah, I mean, yeah, another huge personality uh, in the seventies and eighties. Um, yeah. But you must have been extraordinarily busy if you're doing Capital Radio. You're also doing uh, your TV for Sky, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I have to admit that the Funhouse, you know, wasn't really aimed at my. Uh, age bracket but that was a thing which was you know a really really big tv show that ran for many years as well so all of this going on at the same time you must have been just up to your eyes absolutely that's that's right and i had all my gigs as well i was a real jobbing dj uh ironically not as much as i am now that's what i say now now because we're, i'm talking to you during covid19 i'm not jobbing mm. dj doing live gigs at all but up until now i've had i've had 74 live PAs and uh, and presentation festivals, whatever you want to call them. I've had them cancelled for this year from the beginning of March or early March when it all went crazy yeah. until November. So, uh, you know, that's a lot of gigs cancelled or postponed until next year. So, But back then I was doing a ton of gigs as well as doing Funhouse, as well as doing this and that and Capital and everything else. I mean, when I went to do Funhouse, I would take one week off and I would go to Scotland, take a week off my radio show and record a whole series of Funhouse in seven days. Two a day, two times seven is 14. 14 weeks is three and a half months. That was the series done. Right. And I'd come back. I'd come back after my week's holiday. That wasn't a holiday because I was working 18-hour days in, in Glasgow Scottish Television recording Funhouse. And I'd come back and go straight on the air again. And people would say, oh, Lee, you don't have very tanned. Where did you go? <laughs> I went, oh, I went to, to Glasgow. And they went, oh, that's why you're not tanned. <laughs> but uh, I was stuck inside the studio, whatever the weather. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was unique times. But I never stopped working. And I never turned anything down. And I think that's quite important because you never know when something great is going to finish. 
Well, that's true. Or, or you know, as uh, the things at the moment show, you, you just don't know what might happen that puts an end to to the work that you think you're going to have. Um, yeah, like now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So, I mean, doing live events and live DJing things. What age were you when you started that? Because, you know, I have some pretty horrendous memories of mobile discos and mobile DJing and waiting for equipment to turn up and, and doing like 80th birthday parties and doing 21sts uh, and weddings and things like that where, you know, there's one half of the room wants you to play all the latest pop music and then there's somebody who's 76 over the uh, over the other side of the room who's giving out because you're not playing any of the Beatles or it's too loud, one or the other. I mean, my mobile disco uh, DJing days, I don't look back on with the <laughs> great deal of fondness to be honest i like doing <laughs> nightclubs but those kind of things always gave me nightmares but uh you know do you have experiences in that realm as well yeah i had a mobile disco before i got into uh radio absolutely wow. when i was about 16 17 it was called hit connection and we spelled connection c-o-n-n-e-x-i-o-n oh, just trying edge. to be trendy you yeah, see yeah, yeah. and uh we put it in a shatter type face and it all all looked very good on our business cards and yeah we did okay and in the end I bought the other guy out because he wasn't as keen on me and investing each weekend's profit into new equipment which I wanted to do to make it bigger and better but like you I had the same problems I can remember soldering some Belgian light bulb into uh, into a, a unit whilst mm. we were playing because oh. <laughs> <laughs> it had blown up. So uh, we always never we always took our solder with us, soldering iron, and uh, we soldiered on with our soldering iron, and that was that was okay. But but my gigs are amazing. The ones I do to this day, you know, I play in front of huge crowds. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've played the O2 and Wembley Arena and uh, all the big venues with lots of different acts and many festivals and in front of tens of thousands of people and uh, Jersey Weekender and Let's Rock festivals and so many. I'm just blessed. I probably play to more than, gosh, I should think probably more than three, four hundred thousand people every summer. That's incredible. I mean, I look at your Instagram and all of a sudden there's a picture of you with this massive crowd in some massive nightclub or, or things somewhere around yeah. the world, you know, and, and I guess people might think that, you know, DJs or radio presenters have a certain lifespan. And once you sort of grow out of, let's say, being a chart DJ, you've got to sort of move quietly into the background and, and sort of uh, grow old gracefully. But, you know, uh, that doesn't appear to be what you're doing. And these gigs, I mean, are a lot of them based around sort of 80s 90s music because you know certainly there have been uh, a bit of a revival in terms of 80s acts and 90s acts uh, 80s in particular you know sort of coming together and doing these tours and and what have you so there's a big audience there for that kind of stuff well one i've never been busier so i feel very blessed and two i shouldn't blow my own trumpet because it is all all of it all my work that i do is based on retro absolutely yeah i mean i've even just done as we speak this week I've done a load of links introducing 80s and 90s pop videos for retro drive-in movies in Ireland. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, I'm going to be on the big screen in Ireland. I think it's going to be starting next week. I think they're they're uh, open for business and saying that it's a really good, safe way for you to have some entertainment. You come out in your car, you buy your ticket online before you come, and then you turn up in your car, your windows are shut, you watch the movie or the uh, the video show, the video shows that I've done, and uh, safe environment, isn't wow. it, for actually going out for the evening? I didn't even know that was a thing. 
and Ret- now, retro, retro driving movies. Dot IE. There That's it the, is. Uh, there you go. I've there it is. Done it now for, for Ireland, so there's a good connection for you. Various race courses uh, and what have you. Uh, the car parks of race courses. Uh, across the country. Wow, that's cool. I didn't even know that was a thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, we don't have it here, but um, certainly in Ireland, apparently these guys have been going for quite a while. So they asked me to do that. So that's purely, they asked me to do the 80s and the 90s. So I've done okay. 10 videos for each and it's it's purely based on nostalgia and on the past as indeed is pretty much my career. Well, it's no bad thing. No bad thing. Yeah. Once you don't have to get Ronnie to go run and get the videos for this thing, that's... that's yeah, fine. yeah, that's true. Yeah. But nostalgia, <laughs> Andrew, nostalgia is rife and it's so popular. And when we do the Let's Rock festivals, people turn up with their kids and they bring their eight, nine-year-old kid and, you know, put some adamant paint across their face and put the kids on their shoulders. And suddenly you've got a kid who's dancing to Prince Charming and Goody Two Shoes, even though, you know, they were born 35 years after the songs were hits. Yeah. So uh, it's timeless. And um, the retro events, especially the 80s, are just huge. They're just so popular. And tens of thousands of people will come for a day out to celebrate the good times that they remember. I mean, the radio station I work for now, Greatest Hits Radio, their strapline, we play the best songs of the 70s, 80s and 90s, and the strapline for the radio station is Greatest Hits Radio, the good times sound like this. Right. And it it sums (laughs) things up. Uh, Our voiceover who says that, the station voice is Dawn French. Oh, okay. So it's a voice that everybody knows and people feel, even if they don't know it's her, they feel comfortable with her voice because she's on there going, the good times sound like this. Yeah, yeah, and it just you just feel at home with that voice, and it's some something you know in the back of your mind, and um, and that's what it is. Every time you hear a song, you go, oh, oh I love one. this. Oh, I yeah, bought yeah. that. Oh, I remember what I was doing when I heard that first. You know, so nostalgia. You just you just can't beat it. It's just hugely popular for live gigs uh, and for the radio station, which is now uh, making a real uh, grasp on the ratings as well. All right. Well, um, one of the other reasons we were going to talk uh, is because you are an Arsenal fan. You've been an Arsenal fan uh, your whole life. Uh, I know there's no football at the moment, but uh, how how are you feeling about what's going on with Mikel Arteta? Are you encouraged by what he was doing before everything shut down? I was going to say, I can hardly remember. It's been so long. But uh, all I can remember is that uh, Arteta did contract coronavirus, didn't he? Which was really the first sort of... famous, well-known person that anybody had heard about. So Arsenal were right up there, up front with the virus before anybody else. And uh, they were the first game to cancel, weren't they? To actually put a game off in the league as well. So, um, yeah, it seems an awfully long time ago. Uh, But I've also heard that they've now resumed training in uh, safe capacity as well. So that's a good sign. Is football something you get a a great deal of time to to enjoy? Because if you're gigging and you're traveling and you're doing gigs all over the place, it must be difficult to to find time to get to games or even watch the games, depending on time zones and what have you. Still enjoy it, yes. Uh, Sometimes I have to uh, miss out, obviously, because I might be on a plane or something, because a Mm. lot of my work does involve traveling, as you say. had a season ticket up until a couple of years ago, and uh, I think this is the second season where I haven't had a season ticket, mainly because I just did get too busy and found that I wasn't utilizing the ticket well enough and Mm. uh, couldn't often find somebody who was able to go either, and I thought an empty seat wasn't an ideal thing, and also a bit of a waste of money if you're not going. So I gave it up uh, the season before this one and um, you know I might try and pick another one up another time when I get a bit older and I get a bit less busy but um, for the moment 
No, I'm not a season ticket holder, but I do love to watch them on TV. Nevertheless, if I'm around, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, do, I chat back and forth with uh, with Nicky, your son, uh, who's uh, very passionate. Yeah. It's fair to say uh, <laughs> he's he's very passionate. My son, you need to jump on his Twitter. It's certainly an interesting experience. Yes, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> so, look, um, one final thing before we go. I believe there is a book coming out in uh, October. Yes. What what can you tell me about that? Well, we decided a couple of years ago, uh, it's actually a, a guy who Nicky knows very well. When when I used to take Nicky to school uh, on a rotor, so you know, one day one parent would take three kids and four mm. kids or whatever, and uh, another day someone would take uh, the same kids to the same school, you know, from the same area as such. Um, and the guy who used to go there, a guy called Darren, he was very quiet in the car, never used to say uh, very much at all. And uh, Nicky would be quite noisy, and my other son, Daniel, would as well. And they all went to the same school. And then, literally, after not hearing from Darren for many years, he contacted me, now that he's in his 30s and got a couple of kids, and said that Funhouse was always his favorite program growing up. And he was always a bit in awe of the fact that the guy who did the funhouse was driving him to school. <laughs> so that's why he never that's why he never spoke and said anything. I used to think he was just a bit rude sitting in the back, not saying thank you for the lift. But it turns out that he was uh, a very creative guy and had become a, a journalist for The Independent and various other newspapers. And he asked me if he could write a book that was kind of a spoof on me, so a sideline swipe at my life which mentions Radio 1 and mentions Funhouse and all the other things I've done, but not necessarily strictly true. Or is it? People will have to make their own mind up when they read the book, but it's um, <laughs> it's very amusing, and uh, it does involve a number of things where I read it and went, wow, did I really do that? And wow, did, was I really involved with that? Because it's, <laughs> it's just very, very clever, and he's made it into, rather than being a a biography where it goes, I did this, then I lost sure. that job, and then I did this, and, and it's a bit boring. Um, he's made it into um, a fantastic story where I've got Terry Wogan's phone number, and I managed to keep calling him up, and he keeps giving me advice as to how I can get onto the radio, and then one day Steve Wright's taken ill, and I got the call, even though that's not actually how it happened. But it, it, it's, it's a very amusing read. It's uh, with a really good publisher, and it's out, hopefully, I think I think October 20th it's come out. And we're using the, the name of the book um, as being uh, a look back on my life based on the phrase that we used in the kids' show Funhouse in between every game when we showed a clip of the game in slow motion for about five seconds. And I used to twirl around and say, let's rerun the fun. So that's what we're doing. We're rerunning the fun, looking back at everything I've had fun with over the last nearly 40 years and uh, the book will come out in October and hopefully people will like it and embrace it for what it is and they'll work out whether or not it's all true. Yeah, they can uh, decide uh, amongst themselves which bits are fact, yeah. which bits are fiction. I'm sure, yeah. you know, I'm sure it's all... It's all fun. It's all fun, <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, well, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Uh, Pat Sharp, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on and up the arse blog. Thank you. <laughs>
<laughs> I do love a smooth radio voice. And that's what we got with the legend, Pat Sharp. Thank you very much indeed to him for uh, for taking the time and coming on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Pat Sharp. That is at Pat Sharp. And thank you to Nikki for his help in setting that up. Right. I think I've uh, I've talked enough for this week. I've got to save some shit for like all the rest of the week. So we've got to go before football starts again. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra. As always, in the meantime, have yourselves a fantastic weekend, whatever you get up to, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Stan Cranky, and this is a message for all our season ticket holders. You have a special place in our hearts because you are the most gunner-tastic of our fans. And we know that you're looking for refunds on tickets for games that won't be played. Sure. You could have the money and you could spend it on rent or groceries, but we here at KSE want to give you something more. We want to give you something special. So in lieu of cash refunds, I'm going to sing to you the collected works of Johnny Cash. myself today just because of um, love is a burning thing tell me now baby is it good to you does it go to the toilet sniffing glue uh -huh. I can take you higher I fell into a ring of fire no refunds.